chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for and even prevented. I'm John Chigi and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus materials from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. BP, Texas City. The BP owned and operated refinery in Texas City, Texas in 2005, though the original plant was first constructed in 1934. In 2005, it consisted of 30 process units, employed approximately 1,800 staff, and refined 470,000 barrels of oil a day, making it the largest BP refinery in North America at the time. Oil refineries, broadly speaking, take crude oil and separate it into its constituent components, then blend together those components with others to create the products we use every day, from aeroplane-grade kerosene to petrol or gasoline and diesel fuel. A key part of a modern refining process is an ISOM unit, I-S-O-M, which was installed at the Texas City refinery during the mid-80s as part of the unleaded petrol or gasoline upgrade of the time. ISOM isn't actually an acronym. It's an abbreviation of isomerization, and it can be used to change the ISO configuration of a hydrocarbon from one ISO form to another or to separate it out. This plays a role with octane ratings and octane boosting to create the precursors for unleaded gasoline or petrol. Briefly about hydrocarbons and sticking primarily with so-called straight chains, we start with methane, which is CH4, single carbon, four hydrogen atoms surrounding it. Then as we increase the number of carbon atoms and create longer and longer hydrocarbon chains, we have ethane with two hydrocarbons. And as we add more, we get higher order hydrocarbons like butane, pentane, hexane, heptane, octane, and nonane, and they go onwards and upwards from there. The specific part of the ISOM unit where the incident occurred was referred to as the raffinate tower. The raffinate tower injects a small amount of liquid raffinate at the bottom of the tower, heats it up, and this then allows the lighter hydrocarbons to be separated from the denser, more complex and higher octane hydrocarbons as they each vaporize and come out of solution. This is possible since they have different densities in their vapour form, so they will settle at different heights in the tower, and some can then be extracted from the top of the tower as needed. This typically includes pentane and hexane. Technically, raffinate is a non-aromatic, primarily straight-chain hydrocarbon mixture, which is a byproduct of other refining stages earlier in the plant. These lighter components are then stored in the light raffinate storage tank and the heavier components in the heavy raffinate storage tank. The tower itself is 170 feet or 52 metres tall and nominally requires about 6 feet or 2 metres of liquid in the bottom of the tower to function correctly. Too high a level and splitting won't be effective. Too low a level and the production won't be optimal. Overall volume of the tank is approximately 3,700 barrels, which is significant, and during normal operation, the vast majority of that volume is occupied by gas, not liquid. Before we get to the incident, it's important to understand the context In early 2005, there were extensive maintenance programs underway on site, and by March, there were over a 1,000 subcontractors engaged on site. To accommodate this larger number of additional personnel, BP had placed 10 portable offices near the Ultra Cracker unit and several others near other process units throughout the complex, for convenience purposes primarily during the maintenance work program. One set of buildings were approximately 120 feet or 35 metres away from the base of the blowdown drum of the ISOM unit. 
This was a double-wide wooden frame trailer with 11 offices and was used primarily for meetings. Placing them this close allowed workers to save significant amounts of time walking between the work location and the offices when referring to drawings, site plans, procedures and having meetings relating to the maintenance works. With that background, now let's talk about the incident itself. On the 21st of February 2005, part of the ISOM unit was shut down as part of a maintenance cycle that was scheduled to take approximately four weeks to complete. At 2.15am on the 22nd of March 2005, with those maintenance works now completed, the night shift operators began the restart process by injecting raffinate into the splitter tower. The tower unit has a liquid maximum operating level of 9 feet or 3 metres from the bottom of the tank. 6.5 feet or 2 metres was the normal operational level as previously mentioned. However, during the startup, the process would often cause this level to fluctuate significantly. Lower levels in the tower during startup were thought could damage the furnace, so operators would let that level go above the 9-foot level to avoid potential suspected furnace damage. At 3.09am, an audible high-level alarm went off as the level passed 8 feet, driven by the level transmitter. A secondary, fixed-position high-level alarm just above the 8-foot level did not go off. After the incident had occurred, it was found that this secondary level switch had been noted as faulty about two years previously. The maintenance work orders were closed each time it had been reported, despite it never actually having been repaired. More on that later. By 3.30am, the level indicator showed a full level, that's 9 feet of liquid, had been reached, and the operator stopped filling the tower at that point. Interestingly, in the investigation that followed, the Chemical Safety Board, or CSB, estimated that the level had actually reached 13 feet, or 4 metres, at this stage of the startup. How was that possible, though? A brief aside about that. The operators could not accurately determine the level since the scaling of the level transmitter only covered the operational range, not the entire height of the raffinate tower. Sometimes this is done to provide better resolution over that range to improve process control granularity, but for safety systems it's not considered to be good practice. And what do we mean by better resolution? The level is an analog value, a current or a voltage, and let's say there's an analog input card that then converts this into a 16-bit integer. As an unsigned integer, that's a value between 0 and 32,767 that can indicate what the value actually is. If you need an accuracy of plus or minus 0.25 millimeters, that's 1 100th of an inch, you can only scale that to 0 to 9 meters or 0 to 30 feet in total using an unsigned integer. Sometimes having as much resolution as possible is very important, although whether this was the direct reason it had been designed this way in this specific case is unclear. Now back to the incident. The lead operator was in the secondary control room and at 5am handed over the status of the restart with the operator on duty in the main control room, one hour before the end of the shift was due to finish. At 6am the day shift operator came on shift in the main control room. He was working his 30th day in a row, each shift being 12 hours long. It's worth noting that BP had no corporate level or site-specific fatigue management policy and operators were expected to work through major maintenance turnarounds with the same 12 hours a day, 7 days a week as required. Most onshore industries cap this at 21 days on, 7 days off. The handover notes simply stated, ISOM brought in some RAF to unit to pack RAF with. There was no mention of the current state of the ISOM unit, nor any plan or direction for the stage of restarting the unit. At 7.15am, the day shift supervisor finally arrived, and since he was over an hour late, there had been no face-to-face -face handover from the night shift. 
Normally, handover between shifts is from person to person, and where this isn't possible, a detailed written log is kept of the plant's status, especially during startups. That is more normal practice. It's generally considered vital that there's a face-to-face handover, since more information can be conveyed in a short space of time rather than trying to write it all down. Humans are lazy by nature, and at the end of a long shift, it's far quicker to tell someone the plant status in 5 minutes than to take 10 to 15 minutes trying to write everything down. Writing down the critical points is still very important, just not an essay about everything that happened overnight. At 9.51am, the day shift operators resume the startup sequence by recirculating the lower loop and adding more liquid to the ISOM unit. The automatic level control valve was normally used to control the level in the tower. However, the final routing destination for recirculated RAF was unclear as the operators had conflicting instructions. Hence, they left the valve manually shut for nearly two hours. Just prior to 10am, the furnace was started and the raffinate for the tower started its warm-up stage. Just before 11am, the shift supervisor was called away on urgent personal business, leaving the day shift operator in control. There was no experienced supervisor available to replace the one that had just left and the operator on shift, remember, was on the 30th day straight of his swing. The operator had six years of operating experience, including four supervised startups, and although there were two process technicians with significantly more technical and process experience, they were currently assigned to temporary positions for the turnaround that earned additional pay and were not in a position to assist. This person was now in charge of three refinery units as well as the restart process. With no level regulation, the liquid level reached 98 feet, that's 30 metres, just before 12pm. Despite this, the level transmitter was still showing the level at 8.4 feet, that's 2.5 metres, and gradually falling, even though the liquid level was increasing. Around lunchtime, several of the contractors that weren't involved with the recommissioning of the ISOM unit left site for a team lunch celebrating one month of lost time injury free. At 12.41pm, a high-pressure alarm went off in the top of the tower as the rising liquid level compressed the gases at the top of the tower. Since the level reading was incorrect, the operator was confused why they would be getting this alarm. So, they opened a manual valve that was designed to vent high pressure to the emergency relief system for that unit. The pressure relief system was a cold vent stack that was built in the 1950s called a blowdown drum. A cold vent means the gas is allowed to escape to atmosphere without being flared or burned off. They also turned off two of the burners in the furnace to reduce the temperature, thinking that would ultimately reduce the pressure in the top of the tower. With conflicting information, the operator then began to question the flow out of the tower at this point and opened a drain valve to some storage tanks. The drain valves were not designed to operate when the raffinate was at such high temperatures. The drain line was from the bottom of the tower where the liquid was hottest, straight after the furnace, and the heat exchanger in that line ended up increasing the temperature of the liquids entering the top of the tower by 141 degrees Fahrenheit, or 60 degrees Celsius. At 1pm, the workers returned from their LTI-free lunch and began meeting in the demountable nearest the restarting ISOM unit's blowdown drum. By this time, the temperature of the liquid was so high it had begun to boil, spilling liquid into the vapour line, back down the outside line of the tower and into the venting system. At 1.14pm, the three pressure relief valves opened, releasing the high-temperature liquid vapour mix into the blowdown drum. The liquid started to fill the blowdown drum and overflowed through an overflow line into the process sewer, which set off new alarms in the control room. The high-level alarm on the blowdown drum also wasn't working and did not activate. 
The superheated liquid sprayed out of the top of the blowdown stack with several of the staff on ground level describing it as, and I quote, a geyser of boiling liquid, end quote. The resulting vapor cloud was estimated to be the equivalent of spilling an entire tanker truck's worth of gasoline. The vapor cloud expanded over a large area over the course of the next 90 seconds, at which time it encompassed the entire ISOM unit, the nearby trailers, and a parking area for light vehicles. Two workers were parked 25 feet, about 7 meters away, from the base of the blowdown drum in a diesel pickup truck. As the vapor cloud enveloped their vehicle, the engine began to race, and despite their efforts to turn the vehicle off, they couldn't. Diesel engines use high compression to ignite their fuel, and there are no spark plugs. Since the air intake was now bringing in gasoline vapor, as well as air that was then also mixed with the diesel via the fuel injectors, turning off the ignition would have stopped the fuel pump and the injectors, but since the fuel was now coming in through the air intake, and there's no cutoff for that, the engine will never stop running. Unable to turn off the engine and realizing they were enveloped by a vapor cloud, the two workers in the truck exited the truck and ran. At approximately 1.20 p.m., the engine backfired as the combustion cycle was now uncontrolled and the uncombusted air fuel was ejected as the engine went into an overspeed condition. The backfiring engine then ignited the gasoline vapor cloud in the atmosphere outside the pickup truck, which rippled through the entire ISOM unit area. The blast was so significant, it shattered windows up to three quarters of a mile or two kilometers away from the site. Twelve of the 20 people in the nearest trailer were killed, with another three people in a nearby trailer also killed by the blast. 43,000 residents surrounding the refinery were forced to stay indoors until the fire was able to be brought under control. In total, 15 people died and 180 people were injured, most of them requiring lengthy hospitalization. It took two years to rebuild the ISOM unit and to return it to production. The Chemical Safety Board in the United States led the investigation into the incident, and it lasted for two years. It was the largest investigation in the history of the CSB at that time. The investigation concluded that, in addition to technical concerns, there were organisational and safety deficiencies at all levels of the organisation. So let's go through some of those issues. The startup procedure. The investigation concluded that there were several, and I quote, outdated and ineffective procedures that did not address recurring operational problems during startup, end quote. As an example, during the startup process, there was a concern by operators that if the liquid level of the base of the tank became too low, that the level in the burners would also be too low and that that would then cause subsequent damage to the furnace. There was no mention of this low liquid level risk in the procedure specifically, so it's unclear whether or not it was actually a problem or if it was just a perceived problem, but the operators believed that it was true, and this mentality contributed to the overfilling of the tank as an example. The investigation added, and I quote, operators believed that procedures could be altered or did not have to be followed during the startup process, end quote. This is a part of institutional learning and is sometimes compared with the monkeys in the cage experiment. That experiment goes something like this. There are three monkeys in a cage, with some bananas hanging from one end of that cage. Someone outside the cage sprays any monkeys that try to approach those bananas with a fire hose, essentially teaching them not to go up and not to attempt to get the bananas. Then you bring a fourth monkey into the cage that hasn't been in there before, and with no fire hose required, the other three monkeys that have been in the cage the whole time will stop that fourth monkey from going to get 
the bananas. At some point, one of the operators believed it to be true. They modified the procedure on the fly, taught the other operators that it was true, then the operators didn't question it, leading to a procedural deviation that contributed to the incident. For the record, the documented procedure said not to fill it beyond the normal operational level of six feet during startup. Let's talk a bit about the SCADA system. Whenever you have a tower, a tank, or any kind of vessel that can store a gas or a liquid, the flow in and the flow out of that tank are critical pieces of information. When you put the two of those together with the level indication, you can very quickly see flow in minus flow out, and if your level is changing, you can tell if one of those three does not agree. The term used for this is mass balance. If you're putting in large quantities of fluid and there's no fluid coming out and the level isn't changing, then you know something is wrong. Unfortunately, the SCADA screens at BP Texas City for the ISOM Raffinate Tower were designed where the flow in and flow out of the tower were shown on completely different displays that couldn't be displayed at the same time. This made it very, very difficult to tell if anything was actually wrong. Had they been on the same screen, it would have been glaringly obvious that something was wrong. Designing HMI screens is something I've been doing for decades, and it's normal practice to put the flow in and the flow out either horizontally opposed to each other, one on the left, one on the right-hand side of the vessel, or to have them above or below each other so that you can easily visually compare them and deduce based on the level indication or volume indication if something's wrong. Sometimes even that's not enough and clients requested advanced alarming that includes an automatic sanity calculation that tracks flow in and flow out against volume and raises an alarm if there's an error between them that exceeds a set threshold for a period of time. I've implemented that in the past since control systems are there to help. I've actually witnessed operators doing mass balance checks with a desk calculator while they sit in front of a million dollar control system, but you can easily do that calculation automatically in the SCADA and make it even easier for the operator. So why wouldn't you? Staffing was also identified as a problem. During the startup, when the shift supervisor had to leave, there was only one operator running three units and managing the startup with no help. Does it sound a little bit like they might have been understaffed? Staffing levels in operational facilities are too often set by normal operational conditions rather than abnormal operational requirements. The temptation is to look at operator coverage solely in this way and then where there is planned maintenance, either bring the off-shift operators back on-shift, so-called overcycle, or to extend their existing shift pattern rather than hire more operators and train them. Over the previous six years, budget cuts had reduced the number of board operators at the site from two to one as part of the 25% reduction in fixed costs at all of its refineries after the merger with Amoco. Mergers tend to have this mentality of there's a lot of role duplication and management set arbitrary cost reduction quantities that they then roll out to all departments. People are sometimes let go that play key roles in the organisation. The other problem is whilst specific people are flagged to be let go, possibly those seen as underperformers or not team players, others that are more likely to be good performers are the first to leave in the aftermath. They see the additional workload and some of their co-workers being poorly treated and choose to leave as well voluntarily. The Baker panel following the incident concluded restructuring following the merger resulted in a significant loss of people, expertise and experience. Having a second operator on that panel, especially during the restart, would have made an enormous difference. Another interesting point. There was an internal BP report in the lead-up year to the incident, 
and that was tabled to executives in London, stating there were, and I quote, serious concerns about the potential for a major site incident, end quote, following 80 hydrocarbons, that's eight zero hydrocarbon releases in the previous year alone. An internal safety survey completed just prior to the disaster in 2005 noted that, and I quote, production and budget compliance gets recognized and rewarded above anything else, end quote. Whilst there had been an increase in funding for maintenance in the 03-04 year, the money was directed primarily to environmental compliance and, rather unfunnily, to incident response, not preventative maintenance, because they kept needing to respond to incidents, because they kept having incidents, because things weren't being maintained. Hmm. The only safety metric at that time that impacted bonuses was the personal injury rate. What about a KPI measuring unplanned cold venting, unplanned emissions, something like that? The investigators also noted the high level of executive turnover in the decade leading up to the incident, and they had an average duration of only 18 months. Since executives were rewarded based on profit, and that is driven by production and limiting spending to improve cash flow, no major preventative maintenance initiatives were implemented in that time. BP had developed a culture that many industrial sites seem to fall into these days, (laughs) of focusing on personal safety, like trips, slips, falls, minor injuries, rather than on process safety. Their culture had employed and rotated out much of the process engineering knowledge and technical expertise over the preceding years, leaving a majority of higher-level executives effectively blind to actual process safety risks. Personal safety is easier for most people to understand since it's more relatable than something like process safety, which can be quite complicated if you don't understand the technical components if you're not a chemical or process engineer or a mechanical or electrical engineer. Many leaders are put into positions of decision-making power due to soft skills, not technical knowledge, and don't want to appear stupid, so lean away from technically complex issues like process safety when they really shouldn't. Sometimes there's an effect after downsizing that's referred to as a brain drain or a cultural erosion as the more competent remaining employees become outnumbered by less competent newer employees and then they also leave out of frustration. Beyond that, BP had an internal culture that didn't reward or acknowledge reporting of potential safety risks with the Texas City maintenance manager noting in an email to executives that BP, and I quote, has a ways to go to becoming a learning culture and away from a punitive culture, end quote. I've worked in some places where if you raise an issue, like it's a defect or something's wrong or there's a potential minor safety issue, you get laughed out of the room or you're told you're being a nitpicky such and such or sometimes worse. We have other things to worry about. We have real problems, you know. That sort of culture doesn't encourage people from flagging issues, and process safety issues can get lumped in with that. If you're trying to build or maintain a safety culture, that kind of attitude is toxic. Let's talk a little bit more about the level transmitter. Out of the 19 previous startups, the vast majority of the operators had run the ISOM unit beyond its actual measuring range of the level transmitter, and this had then become normalized behavior. During the investigation, it was found that the level transmitter was in fact responding rather unusually, levels dropping and such, when they were actually rising. And it was found later that the level transmitter had actually been calibrated using data obtained in 1975. And that data was from an entirely different process with a different kind of liquid. If all else fails with remote instrumentation, you could have always read the level beside the tank through the sight glass. 
Alas, the sight glass was so dirty, it was unreadable. It hadn't been cleaned in far too long. Prior to startup, all alarms and indications were supposed to be checked according to BP procedures. However, these were largely not performed. That said, I'm not sure how you could validate those without a functioning sight glass or an independently calibrated level transmitter or a test liquid of some kind. For something so important, though, you'd expect redundant level transmitters. In the 80s and 90s, safety studies became commonplace in automation engineering and process engineering. A safety study can come in many forms. However, the most commonly performed are HAZOP and LOPA studies. HAZOP stands for Hazards Operability Studies, and LOPAs are Layers of Protection Analysis. In a LOPA, for example, we identify a major accident event, or MAE, then determine the consequence of the MAE and the process safety time required to protect against it. Hence, the SIL level, or Safety Instrumented Level, is determined. Each SIL level will have a minimum requirement for its components, logic solver, and of course, the process monitoring equipment, redundancy. Without running through a specific LOPA for this situation, you can't know for completely certain. However, many other similar systems I've worked on would require multiple level transmitters in either a 1 out of 2 or 2 out of 3 voted configuration, feeding into a safety rated controller. To comply today would require a 6 to 12 month regular critical function test or CFT to demonstrate compliance. In this case, they had a secondary alarm level switch, which was broken and there was no safety rated system installed at all. Let's talk a little bit about those temporary buildings. When there is an explosion, you're actually safer in the open atmosphere than you are in or near an object like a building because it's the flying debris that will kill you, notwithstanding blast pressure, of course, which will also kill you as easily if you're close enough to the source, irrespective of whether you're inside or outside of a building. When I say inside a building, I'm not referring to a concrete bunker, which obviously would be safer. But most buildings aren't designed to be bomb shelters, and these temporary buildings are constructed from lightweight, thin materials so they can be easily moved. They aren't designed to protect you from an explosion. Typically, they have a wooden frame, and they'll have a light sheet metal on the outside, some insulating panels on the inside, generally fitted with some air conditioning units to keep them cool in the summer. Guidelines at the time of the incident weren't strict enough for temporary structures and were amended following the incident. There was an MOC, that's Management of Change, review when they placed the buildings there. However, they didn't follow up on several action items and never actually risk assessed a scenario that included a potential explosion during those MOC review meetings. BP's own procedures required SIMOPs, that's simultaneous operations, and evacuation of buildings during startup sequences. Clearly, that wasn't followed. Trailers that were located as far as 479 feet, that's 150 metres away, with workers inside them, still resulted in injuries to those personnel. When the ISOM unit was ready for recommissioning, there was no notice given to any of the people in those buildings or to anyone in that area that it was about to start up. Had there been, per BP's own SIMOPS requirements, it would have saved lives. Just want to touch on lost time injuries or LTIs. In one of the very strange ironies of this incident, the team lunch previously mentioned was celebrating one month LTI free. When you first think about this, it makes no sense. But in the BP definition at the time, fatalities are technically not a lost time injury. And in fact, they were specifically excluded from the LTI definition. If someone's dead, they're not going to show up to work tomorrow. So surely that counts as lost time, right? But if it did, 
that would mean all lost time would go on for an infinite period of time, which would render the KPI meaningless. The inherent assumption of the LTI KPI is that there are so few deaths that injury tracking should be sufficient. The truth, perhaps, they needed an additional KPI to track deaths as well. And if you think that sounds a bit harsh, the reason I say this is because during 2004, there were three major incidents at BP Texas City Refinery. On the 30th of March, an incident led to $30 million US worth of damage. No fatalities, though. But the other two incidents each had one fatality, and that was just in 2004. Now, refineries can be dangerous places to work, for sure, but if they're well-maintained and well-operated, there shouldn't be a single fatality. A bit about cold venting. Flaring seems, upon external evaluation, to be environmentally questionable, but in terms of safety, by consuming the hydrocarbons as they exit the atmosphere, you effectively prevent any buildup that could lead to an uncontrolled explosion. Quickly though, flaring is just a thermally adequate outlet with a torch on the end of it that ignites the gas that passes through it. Simple enough. Environmentally, flaring versus cold venting is a separate discussion, probably not fit for this show, but ultimately from a safety position, flaring done safely in a controlled fashion is the far better option. Adding flaring to the blowdown drum and other cold vents in the plant was actually proposed on five separate occasions in the two years leading up to the incident. However, they were never fitted due to production pressures and cost. Because obviously, you'd have to be offline in order to install them, plus they would cost money. Production was king, so they never did it. So how could this have been prevented? There are so many things that we've already covered just in the technical design components, the plant maintenance, and so on. But there's also several human factors that could have also helped to prevent this. Handover. In the industry, many companies have a policy that there must be a face-to-face handover with detailed notes when changing shifts or swings, which clearly wasn't the case or followed here. Fatigue. The lack of a fatigue prevention policy, and hence very long shifts, compounded errors of judgment, and that also contributed to this incident. Training is an interesting one. Training budgets had been cut to a point where training was delivered via standard computerized systems rather than a face-to-face situation where a human could challenge and ask counter-questions to test a person's knowledge, where an automated system simply can't. Plant process simulators also allow trainers to walk through an entire startup sequence, inject faults and check the operator's responses in handling those abnormal situations, but in a controlled and safe environment. Five years before the incident, simulators were recommended for operator training purposes. However, these were never implemented, you guessed it, due to cost. And finally, startup personnel. Assign an additional experienced operator to handle the startup. That's all they do. This reduces the workload on the day operator and lets them focus on all other plan alarms and operation and allows a full focus on the startup, which is one of the highest risk stages of any plant operation. On the 1st of February, 2013, BP sold the refinery to Marathon Petroleum Corporation, ending BP's 15 years of operating the facility. It's now called the Marathon Galveston Bay Refinery and is still in operation today. So what do we conclude from all of this? The impacts of mergers and cost reductions are often not felt until years after they take place. There was an interesting statement made by Trevor Kletz in his 1993 book, Lessons from Disaster how organizations have no memory and accidents reoccur. And in that, Mr. Kletz says, and I quote, organizations have no memory, only people have memory. We write reports, we do investigations, 
we talk about everything that went wrong and how these people, who are essentially innocent, were killed. And it's often called an accident. I hate that word, accident. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as, and I quote, an event that happens by chance or that is without apparent or deliberate cause, end quote. Of all of the investigations I've done myself that I've read about and sifted through, their causes were absolutely apparent and they didn't happen by chance. In many cases too, the choices and inactions to fix broken level switches, for example, were a deliberate avoidance of work that led to the incident. In recent times, police have stopped calling traffic accidents accidents, but rather traffic collisions because of what they were. They were a collision. So was this an accident? No. It was an incident. And yes, it was a disaster. And more than that, it could have been prevented. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, Leslie, Shane O'Neill, Jared Roman, Joel Maher, Katerina Will, Chad During, Dave Jones, and Kellen Fredelius Fujimoto. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal, and our gold producer known only as R. Causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are available in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you can choose to stream value and boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with a Boostergram leaderboard on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chigi at engineered.space or the network at engnet at engineered.space. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>